This is Trinity Church of the Vale Valley, loving God, loving people, and living free. Hello again, everyone. This is Pastor Ethan, and today is Saturday, December the 10th, 2022. I'm so glad that you're joining with us today. Last week, we began our Advent season by remembering the wonderful Christmas carol, What Child Is This?, And we reflected on the miracle of the incarnation, the reality that in Christ, the fullness of God came to us as a fellow human being. And so when we ask the question, what child is this? We're really asking, what God is this? And we learned the all-important word kenosis, this concept we see in Philippians chapter 2 when Paul describes how Jesus emptied himself, right? That's the literal meaning of the word. That in his humanity, being fully God, Jesus was also fully human. Philippians 2, 7 and 8, and this is how the NIV renders it. Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And we talked about that word likeness there doesn't mean a cheap imitation, right? It's the authentic thing. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In the, early, in the earthly life of Jesus, birth to death and resurrection, we see the image of God as the God of humility. That's what that passage in Philippians 2 proclaims to us. And friends, this is key. In Christ, we see that the incarnation was not just a humble action on the part of God, but that humility of heart is God's very nature. In Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, this is what Jesus says when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, think of this. Because Scripture proclaims that in Christ we see the full and true nature of the Father, this isn't just Jesus speaking here. It is God saying, I am gentle and humble in heart. And this leads to our big takeaway from last Sunday. The loving kenosis of Jesus, right? His self-emptying power, his sacrificial love, and his radical servanthood isn't just some temporary departure from the nature, work, and glory of God. Rather, it defines and most fully reveals the nature, work, and glory of God. You know, another passage that drives this home is from Romans chapter 8, right at the beginning, where Paul tells us that, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. And then listen to what Paul says here, right? What I just read is this amazing, incredibly famous and wonderful passage central to the truth of our union with Christ. And right after saying that, Paul says, God did all this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Friends, that's a very significant statement. And again, the word likeness and appearance, these words that we see, this isn't just Jesus pretending to be human. He truly came to experience the human condition just as we do. God sent his own son in the likeness of our brokenness to be a sin offering. 
Again, we don't want to miss this. In his humility, in his kenosis, Jesus not only took on humanity, he took on and lived the human experience. Jesus lived the human condition. Now, Jesus never sinned, but he fully experiences, experienced and understands the brokenness that sin brings. And friends, that's important because if, re- if Jesus really did Right, Romans 8, 3b there, what we just read, if if Jesus really did experience the brokenness of the sinful human condition, then this means that Jesus fully experiences and understands adversity. Jesus experiences and understands what it is to feel pain and devastating heartbreak. This is the key point I want to make right here. Jesus then understands the age-old struggle that we all have with this seemingly irreconcilable chasm between the reality that God is good on the one hand and the stark reality of human suffering and affliction. I want you to go with me to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. And this is what the writer says. Therefore, Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Think of that. Friends, Jesus is able to empathize, and the word there is a a strong word. It means to truly and completely relate to us. He is able to empathize with our weakness because he fully experienced our weakness. Jesus was tempted in every way. And this is a much bigger statement than our concept just of moral temptation and sin. This includes the temptations of anger frustration, hopelessness, and despair because of the depths of injustice and cruelty that we humans perpetrate upon each other, but also because of the tragedies and suffering that comes just from accidents, disease, mental illness, natural disasters, you know, things that your insurance company may call acts of God. Jesus understands the human condition because he experienced the human condition. The conflict between the heights of God's goodness, right, which we confess and which Scripture proclaims, and the depths of the human condition, right, which we experience, this is a huge and crucially important topic. And it's one that we can't even begin to address now, except, I'll I'll just say this, friends, every attempt we make to reconcile these two realities ultimately falls short. They are bridged but it's impossible to reconcile them. And that's a perspective that we're going to spend some time on next year. But right now, how does what we learn about God by looking at Jesus speak to this struggle? You know, one thing Christian culture likes to point to is to the miracles of Jesus, the many instances where he supernaturally overcomes the human condition, mostly through healing, but also supernaturally overcoming nature itself, such as when he walked on water. And we tell ourselves, and many, many teachers out there teach us to do this, we tell ourselves that our hope in in the brokenness and difficulty and challenges of life, that our hope is for Jesus to do that sort of thing in our life situation now. 
And guys, you can find many people who will give testimony to this happening, financially, physically, or otherwise. The problem with this, and friends, this is a significant issue, is that this is not the norm. It certainly is not universal for all believers. And it wasn't even universal during the first generation of the church that we have recorded in the book of Acts. Moreover, it is not promised in Scripture. You know, if we talk about God's provision in the midst of life as it really is, this must be something that is true and available for all believers all the time for the entire history of the church. And so just pointing to Jesus' miracles or supernatural provision as our hope in the great challenges of life, that's not really helpful. And at times, it can be borderline spiritual abuse. But on the opposite side of things is the gospel message that in Christ we have the hope of eternity. That right now is not all there is. And in Christ we have the hope of ultimate deliverance from the afflictions of life. And that is true. That is an amazing truth and source of hope. But this too is not particularly helpful to a person struggling, you know, to house and feed their family. A parent struggling to raise their child in the midst of this crazy world. Or a person struggling with any variety of crisis today. But friends, what do we learn from Jesus about the nature of God to us right now, today? in the midst of life as it really is. I want us to look at three gospel images of how God and the person of Jesus provides and relates to us right now. And even though I'm framing this in terms of life difficulties, these are all signposts that point us to the hope, the peace, and dare we say it, the joy of being in Christ. So first, my friends, in the midst of our brokenness, Jesus is the God who participates. In the church, we often say things like, you know, we, when we believe, that means we give our life to God. God calls us to follow him, to go to him. We are able to participate in what God is doing. And these statements all have truth. But friends, they are all a secondary effect to a primary cause. What I'm saying is this. We give our lives to God because Christ first gave his life to us and gives his life to us. We can go to God because in Christ, God came to us. And we are able to participate in what God is doing because in Christ, God participates in what we are doing. I want to give you an image. In the Gospels, we have two accountings of Jesus walking on water. Maybe three, but probably just two. And the first I want us to see is in John chapter 6, verses 16 through 20. And John records the event this way. Now, when the evening came, Jesus' disciples went down to the lake, this is the Sea of Galilee, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Okay, you've heard this story, but think of this image. Friends, for these Galilean fishermen, crossing the lake by boat was a very common experience, as also was getting caught in a storm. So here they are, fighting against the wind and rain, when Jesus enters the picture supernaturally, walking on the water. 
And now once they recognize him, he gets into the boat and they very quickly arrive at the shore. Now, friends, my analogy here is at a high level, but consider this. The situation of being caught in a storm on the lake was commonplace, but also very dangerous. Boats sank all the time. People died. And into this situation comes Jesus. And the result for the apostles, for the disciples, was deliverance from fear. There's a very similar story in Luke 8, but this time Jesus is with the men the whole time. A storm comes up, the boat is being swamped, and Luke tells us that they were in great danger. Again, commonplace. And where is Jesus? He is asleep. So in Luke 8, starting in verse 24, and it says, Now the disciples went up and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. And Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters, and the storm subsided, and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Let's look at these stories in parallel. Friends, the disciples found themselves caught up in the quite common but very difficult experience of life. Jesus is right there with him. Jesus' presence brings peace and calm, and Jesus' presence in both stories is supernatural. You see, my friends, in both of these stories, Jesus brings his supernatural presence into their very human experience. I just want to give you two big thoughts on this. First, my friends, there is no life experience that we could possibly have, no matter how severe, ugly, beautiful, or mundane, where Jesus is not right there with us. By faith, we are able to recognize his presence, to believe that he is here, because by his Spirit, he is. By our faith in his Spirit, we may pray, Jesus, right now, I need courage. I'm looking to you as my strength. Right now, Jesus, I am hurting, and I look to you as my comforter. Right now, I have great uncertainty, and I look to you by faith as my security. Right now, I am facing great temptation. I look to you as my conviction and my strength. Jesus, right now, I am afraid, and I'm looking to you as my peace. You see, my friends, Jesus is present to us in all of these things through his word and simply through the reassurance of his spirit within us, which by our faith is very real. Second thought is that Jesus' presence in our experience is still supernatural, but not like it was for the disciples. Now, in the Gospels, Jesus' presence was physical, at times supernatural, but ultimately temporary. You know, it's interesting that whenever Jesus left the disciples on their own, they tended to head straight into the tall weeds, if you're familiar with that metaphor. And it wouldn't be until after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost that these men and women would come to know Jesus' presence by faith, just as we do today. You see, for us and for all believers all the time, the supernatural power of Christ's presence is the fruit of his spirit. It is the power of his love. It's peace, hope, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, 
other-centeredness, contentment, and joy. My friends, you know, we tend to downplay these at times and at the same time elevate our desire for physical supernatural experiences or maybe even things like, you know, dreams, visions. Jesus, just show me something that doesn't require me to have faith. But friends, that's a mistake because in the midst of the reality of life, when by faith we look to Christ, we choose to believe and live in the good of what is true of us in Christ, and this then produces in us patience, contentment, hope, other-centeredness, all these other things. My friends, that, that is not natural to the human condition. That is the supernatural work of Jesus Christ dwelling in us in union with our spirit, and directing and guiding and working through us. Again, in every experience we could possibly have, Jesus Christ is right here participating with us in the midst of whatever those circumstances may be. This is the essence of the incarnation, that in Christ, God came to us. Listen to how Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Paul writes, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Think of that. In Christ, God became like us in the depths of the human experience, so that through a faith relationship, as he participates with us in all of life, we might become increasingly like him. And my friends, because this is true, the next thing Jesus teaches us about God is also true. And it's that in the midst of our brokenness, Jesus is God who associates. Now, he's the God who participates with us in all of life, but even a step more profound, he is the God who associates with us. Now, you've probably heard the term guilt by association. You know, as a young person, my parents taught me to be careful of who I hung out with, not to get caught up in group activities where I could get in trouble, even if I wasn't personally doing anything wrong. And that was wise advice for a young person. The problem, though, is that as we grow, we learn to worry that associating with certain people could maybe damage our reputation, right? What might people say or just might make us profoundly uncomfortable? But friends, Jesus did not have this issue. Jesus was never worried about guilt by association. I want to turn our attention to my favorite story from children's Sunday school, the story of the wee little man, Zacchaeus. You know, it's ironic how this story has, become to seen, has, has come to be seen as primarily for, for children because it speaks powerfully to us as adults. And I'm reading from the accounting we have in Luke chapter 19 starting in verse 1, right at the top of the chapter. And it says that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now, parentheses here, you know the deal about tax collectors, right? They were cheats. They were considered, I mean, considered evil. They were, the, they were betrayers of their own people. They were in cohorts with the Romans, right? The tax collectors were hated and distrusted more than anyone else in Jewish society. Now, Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. 
So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming his way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter. You can just hear the righteous, the religious indignation piling up, can't you? They began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, and at this point, the, the real sense of the story is they're at his house at, by, by now. Zacchaeus gets up and says, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Okay, you know the story. And here's the question. At what point did Zacchaeus repent, refer to Jesus as Lord, and change his ways? Was it before Jesus associated with him or after? Well, of course, it was after. And we don't want to miss this. Friends, to go into a person's home as a dinner guest was a powerfully intimate experience. It is today, and it was more so then. See, the concept of table fellowship was one of the most intimate and personal ways that you could spend time with a person. So in the case of Zacchaeus, a publicly known figure, for Jesus to go into his home, at Jesus' initiative, mind you, was tantamount to Jesus proclaiming, this man is my friend. I am going into his world. I'm going into his home. And Jesus did this before the big change in Zacchaeus' heart. Friends, in this image from the heart of Jesus, we see a crucial truth about the heart of God. In the midst of our brokenness, God never hesitates to meet us or meet anyone right where we are. Now, Jesus loves us enough not to leave us where we are, but make no mistake, Jesus comes to us where we are. He participates. Even more, he associates with us, even if it means getting down into the depths of our human struggles with us. You know, as Jesus said to his accusers who didn't approve of his friendship with Zacchaeus, he said, hey, I came to seek out, to come alongside, to befriend, befriend to love and to save the tax collectors, the immoral, the worst of sinners, the lost. I came for them, so don't tell me with whom I can and cannot associate. And my friends, that leads to one more and one very essential thing that Jesus teaches us about the heart of God. And this one may be a bit harder for us. Church, in the midst of our brokenness, Jesus is God who accepts, who accepts. You know, every pastor, many others, you don't have to be a pastor to have had this story, but know this story. So a person, say, they're sharing about their lives, how they've known rejection, abandonment, maybe abuse, crushing low self-esteem, and this person has a working knowledge of the New Testament teaching about Jesus. And so they say something like, you know, I suppose Jesus may love me, but God will never accept me. On the flip side of this, growing up in the church, I often heard the line that we hate the sin but love the sinner. 
Now, back in the early summer, we talked about this and how the church really struggles working out what that looks like, right? What's well, easy thing to say, but we're historically not good at living that out, at figure, again, figuring out what that looks like. But in the Gospels, Jesus shows us the way. And in doing so, he shows us the heart of God. I want to go to the story of when Jesus called his disciple Matthew, who was also known as Levi. And in Mark, he's referred to as Levi. Now, like Zacchaeus, Levi was a tax collector. And in Mark 2, starting in verse 14, we read that as Jesus walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. All right, just a little side note here. This story is almost certainly compressed. You know, if we take the dialogue literally, we may miss the even greater richness of what's happening here. So as Jesus travels, he meets Levi. Jesus initiates a conversation, an initial friendship. Now, Levi might have had some understanding of who Jesus is. Maybe he's heard of him. But through this new relationship, Jesus invites Levi to follow him. And Levi does. As a result, Jesus spends time with him at his house. He may very well have stayed with him for a number of days. And here the dynamic of Zacchaeus is taken to another level. Levi invites his community, his own community over, his fellow tax collectors, sinners, you know, reprobates. And Jesus eats with them. Jesus shares life with them. Picking up in verse 15, it says, While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he do this? Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know, when we look at this, it's not just that they didn't approve, and they didn't. But they were genuinely confused. I mean, they're blown away. Why would Jesus do this? I mean, no one associates with these people. And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And my friends, the image here is powerful. Jesus isn't just associating with people like Matthew, although that's powerful in and of itself. He is doing life with them. They are his friends. He has accepted them. Now, if hearing me say that makes you wince, we're in, you're in good company because it made many people wince then as well. So much so that Jesus was regularly accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You can go find that in Matthew 11. Jesus accepted these people into his life intimately. And for the religious people around him, this was simply, well, unacceptable. In Luke 6, Jesus speaks to this. All right, This is a point where we need to buckle up. Starting in verse 27, Jesus says, and this is Luke's accounting most likely the Sermon on the Mount. He says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other as well. If someone takes your coat, 
Do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. For if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But rather, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. Because he is kind and he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. Okay, friends, with all of that in mind, think with me. Let's say I told you there's this person in my life, and I described my relationship with them this way. I said, This is a person I love, that I regularly do good things for. This is a person I pray for all the time. This is a person I like to bless. This is a person I am vulnerable with. You know, this is a person I learn my I loan my stuff to. And I don't really give it a second thought. This is a person with whom I seek to have a reciprocal relationship. Right? I treat them the way I want them to treat me. This is a person I respect, trust, and I listen to. Right? Based upon that description, would you say this is a person I had accepted into my life? Yes, of course you would. Church, hear me. This can be hard. And I can just hear the yeah buts and the what ifs piling up because they come to my mind. Friends, this is a supernatural way of living. And we need to consider these words of Jesus. We need to wrestle with them. Because remember what he just said, referring to God the Father, the Most High, Jesus said he is kind to who? He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Friends, this is why several months ago I said that the kindness of God, that kindness, when it is born out of the love and character of God, makes no moral distinctions. You see, friends, the reality is Jesus doesn't accept sin but he accepts people who sin. You know, let me restate that just a different way. God in Christ came to set us free from the brokenness of sin. And one of the biggest ways he does this, that he did this and still does, is by first accepting us for who we are right now, even in the midst of our sin. You know, when I was thinking of this earlier, Psalm 40 just came to my mind. Psalm 40, if you go look it up, it is a deep, heartfelt confession of David. You know, David, the liar, adulterer, and murderer. And this is what he says. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. Right? You see the image there? To do that, he would have to get down into the slime and mud with me. David goes on, he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. And he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Many will see 
Be in awe and trust in God because they, David is saying here, just to add a little bit, I think totally in context, because they have seen what he did for me. And because I have then turned to them, participated with them, associated with them, and accepted them in the same way God turned to me. Friends, just let me end with this. In the midst of our brokenness of our own lives and in the midst of our broken world, we, right, disciples who are being transformed by the reality of Christ in us, we will be people who participate with Christ in his work around us and in us. We will willingly associate with people, all people, as bearers of Christ's love. And we will be people who are accepting of others, just as Christ has accepted us. Now, are there exceptions to this? At times there may be, right? Context matters. Details matter, right? Appropriate boundaries can be a thing at times. But what we just described is the heart of Jesus, and it is the heart of God. In Romans 15, speaking into the deep and historic divisions between the Jews and Gentiles who now found themselves both as followers of Christ, Paul said, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. My friends, as people who have received grace and mercy, may we be givers of grace and mercy. So what does that look like for the church in our culture today? What does this look like for me and for you? Church, thanks for sticking with me today. I love you. I pray you're having a wonderful Advent season. And I hope, that, uh, I hope to see you again back here next week. Thank you.